This is Belonging, a podcast that explores being alive in the age of loneliness. I'm your host, Becca Piastrelli, a writer, mother, and community tender currently living on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County, California. In this show, we explore topics like rites of passage, cultivating meaningful community, seasonal and cyclical living, and what it means to be a good ancestor in these times. I have thought-provoking conversations with friends, teachers, elders, and ancestral medicine keepers to help support you in bringing more meaning and connection to your life. I also pop in here and there to share updates and learnings from my own story, because we were meant to do this together, cosmically holding hands as we walk the spiral of life. You can expect to be challenged by new or old ideas, face your beliefs and what systems informed them, get curious and brave to tell the truth about the deeper, harder things, and feel comforted in the knowing that you don't have to navigate it all alone. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Belonging Podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here with a juicy episode with the one and only Tim Piastrelli, my partner, my husband, someone I've been with for the last 17 years of my life. And he has been a guest before. He was a guest on episode 32. This was like three or four years ago. That episode was called Navigating Marriage, Spiritual Transformation, Witchy Life with Tim Piastrelli. And we thought we'd give you a little update on our life, seeing as a lot has happened for us in the last several years, having a baby, deciding to shift the trajectory of our lives. If you're not up to date, we bought a farm in the Hudson Valley of New York. We have been in the process for the last several months of buying this property that really called to us. I mean, we've been looking for a while to see where our home is, to see where we wanted to uh, leave the hustle and bustle of tech life that I left, but Tim hasn't left yet. And our vision of buying land and building on it and living a more earth-based life. And maybe I'll share that story another day, but we thought maybe it was in Vermont. We thought maybe it was in Colorado. And then this farm, this property just magnetized us to it. And at a time when we were just like kind of unavailable, we had COVID, we were not well. And yet still this place said, come come here. And so that has been happening behind the scenes over the past several months. And now we are in the process of taking legal ownership of the land and migrating our family from California to New York, which we are taking a very slow migratory plan. We have we have some privilege there to be able to move slow saying goodbye and feeling the grief of leaving California and really trying something new and saying, okay, let's see what happens. Uh, so I shared that last week on Instagram and to overwhelming response um, that gave me a total vulnerability hangover. But yeah, I'll share more there as things move along. But what I can say is we have made the leap to have land and tend animals and farm and raise our child in a very different space than where we are living now. So we knew the farm was happening when I interviewed Tim. This was like maybe six weeks to eight weeks ago when I interviewed him, but we were not ready to share about it because we were like, we weren't sure if it was going to happen. And it was really intense. And part of us were in denial about it. So you, you're going to hear us be like, we're talking about maybe buying land. And the actual thing is we have done that. But yeah, I asked on Instagram for some questions for Tim. And I took those and I asked him. And we talk about 
the difference in each of us and our our lives and our paces. Tim's origin story around growing up on a farm and and then navigating towards computers as a place of safety in a really chaotic home environment and how he's looking at the age of 40 at his identity not being about how much money he makes or what he does and how having a child impacted him, how having a partner with postpartum mental health struggles impacted him and and his experience with men's work and men's retreats and how that has really opened him up. And we're definitely a work in progress. So I don't want this to turn into like Becca and Tim share the secrets to fill in the blank because I'm pretty protective and private about my partnership. So this is like a big deal to be sharing this conversation with you. And Tim was like pretty hesitant and then had a lot to say and then had to listen just to really, you know, be careful with his words and really, you know, seize words as spells. And what I'm saying is, is I don't want to commodify my marriage it's something so much deeper than that. So this is a way to share a bit of my life that is very much in process and in progress, like literally in process. We are so just like figuring life out, figuring how this next phase is going to go. But it felt like, you know, a dispatch from the trail, a captain's log, if you will. So yeah, why don't you have a listen to what, what he has to say in this conversation about a tech pace moving to an earth pace and the devotion of presence and partnership and men's work with Tim Piastrelli. So here we are three years later after the last interview I did with you for the belonging podcast, my partner, my husband, Tim Piastrelli For a while, that episode was hot, hot, hot. But basically, I was interviewing you about what it's like to be married to me and like how you, as a person who's very different from me, view me and view my work. So here we are three years later, and this is, people have been asking to have you back. Also, because I've been sharing about the transformation I personally have been going through and you've been going through your own transformation and we as a family have been going through our transformation. So we're here to chat about it. Welcome, Tim Piastrelli. Thanks, Becca. (laughs) So where should we start? I put out a, a, a little question box on Instagram and we got Lots of questions. I'd say the hottest question we've got is, how do I get my my man, my partner, into this work that I talk about and I'm into? And I think there may be this assumption that you're into this work too. Are you into this work? The work that you do? Or what do you mean? Right. I don't even know what this work is spiritual connection, operating with intention, a connection to ancestors and the land. Are you into this work? Yeah, I think it's different for everybody. For me, I would say having integrity and more intention and I guess belonging is something that I look at that I'm on a journey with you in. Yeah. Do you feel like I dragged you into it? I mean, I think you helped educate me into it. I want to say dragged into it. So what got you into it? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think since 2013 and your journey, I've just been... What happened in 2013? That's when you quit corporate, started the dabblist, started doing... The blog, yeah. The life coach work. Yeah. <laughs> um. You're laughing because I had a long meandering journey through it that was frustrating for you at times and frustrating for us. Yeah, definitely. But also I think even that space has evolved a lot and as you've evolved. um, And I was kind of a pessimist of some of it in the beginning. Oh yeah, Um, you were hardcore skeptical. mm -hmm, With the term life coach and those aspects. But we fast forward the last 
five or six years, as you continue the shift, I just naturally gravitate around yourself, like you, your friends, individuals, and just to having more of a conscious lifestyle of slowing down, knowing when to speed up, how to have presence. Um, that's been very helpful for me physically, mentally, and also my career, right? And so just stepping more into a leadership realm of having intention and having belonging around you, having people feel like they are belonged with you, if that's a word. Yeah. So one thing I've been sharing about us and about you is our desire to step out of like the hustle culture, our desire to step out of productivity, hustle, grind culture that has hurt us in a lot of ways, but also we've benefited from in a lot of ways. And I've shared that we have thought about buying land and leaving our, you know, San Francisco tech lifestyle and and doing something different. And I've shared that you've had that desire too. I've also shared about how you've had this really fast paced job that's contributed to trouble sleeping and, and stress. And that after we had Atlas, you had to go back to work really quick and it was really hard. And, and so one of the questions we've got was like, what has happened for you? I mean, the people know how I feel, but what has happened for you internally to shift away from this like lifestyle, this that we all are trying to keep up with that actually is hurting us and and look towards a different way of life. Even if you don't fully know, I don't fully know what we're walking towards in the future, but I know we're walking towards something different. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I would say for my whole life, I've been very, very fast paced. I usually five, six steps ahead, over calculate and index and and really process data very quickly. It's been one of my strong suits. It's also incredibly exhausting. I think also having probably ADHD, going to a room, hearing 15 conversations at once and processing that data in parallel. That's, you know, it's just, just a lot. Um, it's been a very productive aspect in whatever you want to call my corporate life and success there. Um, of being able to move quick. And I would just say, you know, at being 40 and now having Atlas um, slowing down and having more time with her is just, that's a focus point for me. So, so do you think having her was the catalyst? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, having our daughter was definitely the key there. It's not the only thing though, just natural burnout, right? Um, being executive, always being a top contributor, driving teams, being in the tech industry, not just like typical software tech, but cutting edge autonomous vehicles, you know, from hardware, software, like, there's just a lot going on there. Yeah. You're literally building robots mm -hmm. and, and treating, being, expecting each other to be robots. Yeah. And, you know, doing the death marches, which is essentially a term in the software industry. They say that. Yeah, it's a death march, which is, you know, we don't necessarily do that all the time, but that happens where you are grinding 18-hour days and working on the weekends to hit product release or deadlines for board or new investments or just, just agreed upon releases. And so that's just the culture we live in with inside of tech. You know, it's not always that bad, but it can be rough, right? So just getting out of that for me just seems like the right thing to do at some point. You said that you're, you've always sort of been fast paced your whole life. Do you want to share any reasons why you think that is? Uh, I don't know. I'm just, I've always been really quick to the draw when people are explaining something, just picking it up and jumping ahead and being able to move fast. I mean, from being a young kid, very isolated, only being a friend as a computer. Um, from yeah, horrible, actually, know. can you share why? I think it's important to share for people listening who really know me. And like, I always talk about like earth pace and slowing down. I think it's probably interesting for people to hear that I'm 
in partnership with a person who, who's like so major soothing mechanism as a child was computers. I mean, yeah, being on my, on a computer at a very young age of like nine and being very fascinated with how you can manipulate and inputs or outputs and what you can do there. And then not really having a lot of friends and being bullied and just being stuck on this thing. Yeah, I learned a lot. And I was fascinated with going quick and making changes and just also my behavior, my patterns of wanting to always optimize and do something better, faster, more efficient. I mean, that's just been my whole life. Mm-hmm. Right? But what was what was before the computers? You lived on a ranch. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I grew up on a farm, on an apple orchard with all some vineyards. Um, with your literal Italian grandfather. Great grandfather. Great grandfather. Yeah. Showing you the ways of your ancestors. Yeah. And that was like amazing from as early as I can probably remember, like three and a half or four until about six, seven. And then we had to leave the ranch because of a horrible divorce and move to a place, a suburbia town from there. And then was kind of thrown in another whole realm of just, I don't know, like typical suburbia. <laughs> Right. right. And as long as I've known you, you speak of those the, of living on the farm with such longing, with such like happiness. It was, it felt good to you. Yeah. I mean, go outside at five years old and just drive a tractor and dig in dirt and climb up trees and go raid the vegetable garden and play with the animals and rinse and repeat. And really, it's like a, freedom lawless environment it's a lot of fun yeah yeah Yeah, i'm sure i gave my mom a little heart attacks but um but yeah it's a lot of fun growing up in that and being dirty and playing with your hands and yeah and then going to well-defined suburbia with only box stores and no farmer markets or local markets or a town that really even knows each other was weird yeah and the computers became the place to go yeah it was that's i normalized that and that was you know and also, my one of my really good, still best friends, he was playing the computers at age two. So him and I, he actually introduced me because of his dad, who was in tech. And that was really, him and I are like two peas in a pod. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it really started. So here you are, 40, at 40 years old, having reached like a, an inflection point in your life. You, you talk about hitting midlife. And, and making a lot of powerful realizations about the limits of your body, about um, like the the culture that you work in, about you've got a you know partner who's always talking about like earth pace and slow down, and and I'm wondering if if you have anything to share around like the integration of these parts, like the child who grew up on the farm and then the one who mastered computers that like kept him safe and, you know, was ended up being a, your livelihood. And, and here you are now with a two-year-old and recovering from burnout. We're talking after you've taken two months off from work. What do you have to say about like what you know of life now, given like your experience? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely been burning the candles at both end for since my probably mid twenties or right, before then. But your favorite word, I say, grinding, right? Which you know, I know I get so triggered when trigger you say that. Trigger word for you, but yeah. for me, grinding is was a form of success for me. Like I associate grinding and output with identity of how good you are, right? Which is not true at all, um, as I've gotten quote wiser i would say so yeah like i don't know i feel like your identity you've been contending with your identity yeah i'm be stepping away from tech and being on top and all that at some point like that is an identity shift um and i've made my career and my life and really who i am about being the best on computers and being able to do the impossible to like you know self-identity but really then tying that to work and output but work and output is not your identity that's a job right that's yeah. not 
not what like it's not what you do it's the integrity that you show up in and you know i guess yeah what you value and at the end of the day like i love what i do but that's not my identity right and so yeah. that's been that's been a, a big thing in the last like five years for me of just realizing oh my job and my status in that job is not my identity that's just a title and a profession it's not me right so that's been a big so who are you i'm still figuring that out mm-hmm. still figuring that one out i think a lot of men struggle with this do you yeah with a daddy or well yeah. like the pressure to provide hustle culture seeing who they are outside of what they do i mean i know women contend with this too but uh, yeah, I think what you're going through is deep and important and also just so important a voice for so many other people going through it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of men have identity concerns or issues or however you want to phrase it. I mean, quote, midlife crisis that people talk about, which I think is a little different actually. But yeah, uh, from the circles that I'm around and the men that I'm around, I mean, people, when you start doing more intentional work with yourself and start asking the harder questions and focusing on past trauma or looking into your relationships or your behaviors and patterns and actually admitting to certain things that you want to change and starting from point A to actually get to point B, like literally looking at that, I think a lot of stuff comes up and identity is usually a big one, right? And then until you figure out like who you are and changes you want to make, I mean, it's pretty, can't really make changes. Yeah. And like, I know I said earlier, like, I don't know, like, what is your identity? I have a lot of things I could say are my identity or that I'm working towards, but acknowledging that for me, a corporate executive in a very successful tech company, you know, trying to sell a product and change the world for a certain perspective, like money is not, who I am. It's just what I'm doing. But it's not who I am. It's not my identity. That doesn't make me a better or worse person. Some of that stuff gives me purpose, but there's so much more than just getting up and writing code or running teams. Like purpose is also getting up and stewarding land and playing with Atlas and helping out at school or helping other men. Like there's so many things, right? So you know mm-hmm. your identity's always in my opinion it's always shifting and so you just kind of walk into your values and principles and i think that's something that i'm just homing more into and one of my values right now or principles to spend more time with family and be more present for atlas and slow down and like really be present and it's hard to like i call bs anyone said that they can multitask and be present and do all this stuff because that's me. And I know, I know I can listen, but I'm not, I can not present hundred percent. I'm always wandering. I'm always thinking four steps ahead and being true present is dropping everything you're doing and being still in time and listening to that person or being just observing that person or that object or that, you know, whatever insert X there. And so I know I'm really good at multitasking and it could be 80% present with multiple, you know, objects at once, but that's not true dropping and having a devotion and presence. I feel like that's something that I'm trying to work more on. Yeah. And I, I know I can't do that if I'm every day just being programmed to multitask and be in this chaotic environment of, of work. Right. That's not something that's going to be conducive to me. It feels so good to hear you say these words and it's felt so good to f- to feel that focus shift on family, on Atlas, on us. I think this might be a natural time to ask, like, I've been very open with this audience around how hard the last two years were for me, being postpartum in a pandemic and being diagnosed with with delayed postpartum depression and rage and and I've even shared that a lot of that rage was targeted at you because you were the, you were the one here 
and just like how hard it was for me to acclimate to becoming a parent. And I'm wondering if there's anything you want to say besides the fact that Atlas's birth shifted your priorities and had you look at your identity more deeply. What, what was it like for you? It was hard. It's very hard. And having Atlas was one of the most wonderful things and also one of the hardest, most chaotic things ever. And I think it continuously, like it keeps shifting, right? And it gets easier and easier and easier, but also hard in a different way, right? But not being sleep deprived and, you know, that, that's been a big, a big, a big plus. Yeah. The sleep, can we just, can we just go deep on the sleep deprivation for a second? That was really, really difficult for us. Like sleep deprivation is a form of torture. And I know that every parent is somehow sleep deprived, but our experience of it, I mean, it felt like a reality distortion. It felt so hard. Yeah. I mean, yes, yes, yes. And for me, I'm kind of chronically in the past have been sleep deprived because of work and you have insomnia working 16 hour days or 15 or whatever. And then going to bed thinking about work and waking in the middle of the night, thinking about work and, for the next task I need to do and why or how to make it better and then getting up and doing it. It's like, I've always had that, which again is it's, it's a blessing and a curse. And I think when having Atlas, it really showed the curse side, like the, the inhibitor versus the enabler bit, like, holy shit, this is not going to work. Like I have to rest. I'm going to die. And I couldn't rest. And then I had to go back to work. And then, so having Atlas three weeks after having her, Having to do a structure reorg on the team, moving some people out. Um, that was really you just hard. had a really intense. It was work really project. hard during that time, yeah. and you know, both physically on me and you, and also mentally on myself and my team, and just people like you know, doing org shifts and moving people up and out, and it's just like it's people's livelihoods. It's just so taxing and. When you're saying moving people up and out in work shifts, you're talking about firing people. Yeah, firing or promoting or restructuring. Yeah, yeah being right? in charge of people's livelihoods. Yeah, and like during that when you're so tired and you still need to ensure that you show up with empathy and that you are grounded and that you can give those individuals the same amount of focus. And even you know some conversations are hard based performance, some are hard based off just decisions the organization has to make. And everyone's human, right? And so approaching that in a sound, collective manner while being sleep deprived, while, you know, the it's just like it was a lot. Three once. weeks postpartum. Yeah, yeah, that's inhuman. Yeah. And that's then, not cool. And then, of course, we had a lot of deliverables to hit and deadlines. We had end year. There's just a lot going on when Alice was born. And so, like. We, we struggled, you and I. Uh, for sure. And so, it's like, point I'm making here is. The first couple of weeks were like just in twilight zone of what is going on, you know, not even understanding how to take care of baby, what to expect. And we're both just like, whoa. Um, and then going back to work and then doing that while still caring for you and the baby. And, you know, the first couple of months as a man, at least from my experience, was really hard because you had this little creature that was a blob that was attached to you. And then there was you. And so there was a sort of belonging and the baby needed you, but nobody really needed me, but I had to run around, do everything. And so it's like, I just felt like this vessel that was just moving things for people and taking care of everyone, but nothing, you had no space to acknowledge or give me gratitude. The baby wanted nothing to do with me. Right. Just very attached to you. Until like probably four months. And then that's when like, oh, the baby had a lot of, or Alice had a lot of, and started shifting and had a lot more attention and could really, you know, express herself towards me and want to see me. And so it's like, it's like that all started the shift. And you kind of came out of your haze a little bit as well. Um, and seeing some of the, you know, as you say, invisible labors of that was going on. But yeah, the beginning was just, just felt like it was, stuck in work and stuck here and just doing things for everybody and not anything for myself. This is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. And I think 
it started getting more sleep and the babies were sleeping in different cycles. It got a little better, but the first 18 months were, were rough, but also beautiful in its own way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to say about when I was diagnosed with delayed postpartum depression and how that felt for you? I mean, it was good that have an official diagnosis of it, like, because it was very clear to me something was off. What were you seeing or feeling? Um, I don't know. You kind of, you had like a void in you. Like, there was nothing behind the curtain sometimes, right? Just a form of depression that I could see. And then also a lot of some of the rage or outbursts of inconsistencies were just, just new to me, right? Of behavior I haven't actually seen. So that I could tell there was something going on. Um, and also just, just didn't seem happy. So, Moving to a I step of wasn't. so moving to a step of you taking self care was really important and acknowledging that and actually you saying oh I have this I need to take care of it was a big sigh of relief for me because it was like oh okay my partner is acknowledging this and she's going to take care of it and then for me hearing that I was just wanting to be supportive like cool what could I do and that's when you started opening up more with me and talking about how you felt or like what was going on. Cause we hit a dry spell or where we want a dry, dry point at where we weren't actually communicating our needs or what we were feeling. It was just yeah. like get through the day and co-parent and just survive Ships passing in the night. Yeah. You know, instead of actually like that was a while of that Yeah, docking and communicating, we were just passing each other and just doing tasks. And so it was good to hear that you had that, or at least that you were approaching and taking care of yourself. And then it just opened us up to talk more about it, right? And then me to make atomic shifts or little small shifts of my own habits of how to help with inside of... What shifts know. What shifts did you make in your habits? Um, I would say some verbiage, like communication, like trigger words for you. Just made sure like I was really conscious, made sure that, you know small touches of passing the kitchen or something, you know, just like little things. So you felt that you were uh, taken care of, but that you had connection. You know what I mean? I know that was important to you as you expressed some of your concerns with just yourself and not feeling like you you had a partner or like you were just missing kind of like human interaction a bit. And also just being more cautious and, and being more, having more empathy towards you. And so, just as we practiced you know, now is, you know, if something happens and we have a disagreement, you know, being more patient and trying to be more present and having more empathy for that and asking questions and not being defensive, right? I think that really restarted my own practice again, like, oh, crap. Yeah, it's not about me, right? So that was kind of a big thing. Sounds like fatherhood has been really humbling for you. I know it's been really humbling for me, motherhood. There's a way in which I'm here. I'm hearing you say like, it's not about you right now. So the only person who can really take care of you is you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't, you have zero cycles though. You, you do now. You have more. I do now. Right? Back then. Yeah. I, I, I really, I remember you being like, I have needs and I'd be like, I, nope, <laughs> nope. Yeah, which then can build resentment because it's like, well, F yeah. you, I need one to be taken care of too. I need this stuff. Totally. And, and the first four months, you know, working, being the financial supporting unit and really running around nonstop and not sleeping and also having a lot of baby duties too compared, you know, and all my regular tasks and very, you know, I, I do pride myself of being a very connected and present father from kind of day one. But yeah, it was just a lot. And then just not seeing scene definitely builds resentment, right? Like for sure. Yeah. There is a common grievance I hear from mamas around when the non-birthing partner is particularly a a man being getting disconnecting for some reason. Like I'd be curious what you think those reasons are. Is it because they don't feel like they matter? Is it because it's really overwhelming? Is it the sleep deprivation? Like, you know, just 
all I know is I talk to mamas who are like screaming out for connection and feeling like they're, they're out of the room. They're just not there. I mean, there's probably a lot you could talk on that one. I would say a lot of it's probably just the man, the, you know, the non-birthing partners, uh, I would say, um, their own postpartum in the beginning. Like I went right, through it. They have postpartum. Yeah, and no one acknowledges that. Um, so that was, that was hard, uh, but I would, from a checkout perspective, for me, it was just, I would have to pass out cause I literally couldn't go anymore. Yeah. But mentally I was, I was, I think I was very checked in. I wanted the help. You know, I'm not, I wasn't one of those fathers who are not who like, Oh, I'm not going to change a diaper, or, you know, putting some rolls on a baby thing. Like, no. So I think like for a lot of men, it's probably men who are like, that's not my job. Right? Or they didn't I, see their, so here's the thing, right? That happens, that happened for you is there no modeling from their own father. Sure. Or the modeling was the mother did it all. Yeah. Was, or that's just what society and norms say too. You know, good old times, one goes and makes money, one stays home with the kids and that's it, right? So like however one's family or, you know, upbringing was for them, then that's going to propagate to a certain perspective. But uh, say for, there's like a couple camps. There's the exhausted. There's the one who just mentally can't take it, like can't be a father, mm. right? There's a camp of these are society norms that I'm going to put labels on and this is what I'm going to do and you're going to do maybe without having natural commitments or agreements around right yeah. you know the energy exchange right and i think with an energy exchange of what partners are doing they're not clear that's when things are complicated and so like i look at partnerships like a 50 50 energy exchange but that could be indexed 80 90 percent in one area to 10 percent somewhere else it really depends on what you're looking at and capacity limits yeah and the capacity is part of that exchange though just like if if someone can only give you 20% of that's it and you still want a 50, 50, that means they're giving you 10% then, right? It's like yeah. of that. So it's just, it's, this is where the commitments are really, really important. I think you and I started to figure more of that out, but we're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. But I think like I get, I get frustrated when I hear people say like, Oh, I'm, I can't change a diaper or something like that. And it's like, really actually makes me angry when you hear men talk about they don't want to change diapers. It's like with my daughter, the most vulnerable spot she can be changing her diaper and then making sure she doesn't get a rash on her butt and like taking care of her. like, how would you, why would you not want to do that? And like just seeing yeah. her in that, in that vulnerable position where she just smiles and wants to talk and interact. Like it just really, I feel like some people just that check out, it's really scary. Like I think, yeah. and I think that's also going to propagate, you know, we have a daughter, um, but if we had a son, like it's going to propagate more of that stigma of men are hands off with kids and like, yeah. and all that. So I don't know where I'm going with this one, but that's just, we kinda, love it. We love it. That's kind of how I feel that where for me, specifically men definitely more involved with their children and having clean, clean energy exchanges of accountability and agreeing with your partner of what is expected, having quote your own contracts with each other and being so, willing to renegotiate at yeah, any time. Correct. It's not a set in stone sign of blood, but that's just really important. And like men need to step up and do that where it's really important to, to be there in those moments with your children. At least that's my opinion. of it. I'm curious. I know, I know in the first like six months, I had a lot of like my inner child triggers come out, particularly I would notice, I've talked about this in the podcast before, like Atlas would cry about sleep and I'd like play out like experiences of like my parents like responding or not responding to my needs when I was a baby or like, I remember I'd rock her and I'd realize like, am I rocking her or am I rocking me? like a real sense. And I've heard this from other parents too, like having a child does trigger some sort of like childhood memory, inner child healing. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about that. Just be just knowing 
in particular your story, which you, you aren't required to share here, around being a dad? Nothing in the early days triggered me of like taking care of myself. What I always told myself was always be a better better father than the fathers that I had, right? I do remember when we would do nighttime massage with her after bath, you would say every night, I wish someone massaged me like this when I was a baby. Yeah. Cause I was just like, I was, I didn't even think about doing that. And then as we were putting, you know, oils and massaging her after a bath, I was like, well, it's really smart. And I was like, yeah, that never happened. I can't recall this. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't, there was zero resentment okay. that I was more just curious of like, whoa, like this is, this is cool. Like, and I kind of want to give Atlas everything that we can give her to, yeah. to help her. Right. And so it was interesting, interesting to see like, oh, we're massaging every night. Those are oils. It kind of made me think a little bit like, man, I should probably be putting oils on my skin too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just so it was more of just a observation. Well, that's a perfect segue, I think, to what, what you are doing for yourself. I know a lot of people want to know about men's work. And that is something that you engage in. That's something you've engaged in for a while. Dipped your toe in, come back in. You're you're in it. You're working in it pretty intensely this last year. And I guess I'm curious, why is men's work important? And also, what is it? Yeah, I mean, men are fucked up in this world. They are. Why? Uh, just toxic, the toxic masculinity and the corporate and tech environment. And this is, a, this is, this is all my imperialist capitalist patriarchy um, is the answer. Yeah. And like just not like egos and just not being humble. I was just, there's a lot going on there. But for me, I would say like, yeah, start some men's work. What? Like 2015 or something. You went to a weekend retreat. Yeah, like a long time ago, and that was cool. And, and you came back changed. I came back just, you know. It's, Fired up. It's interesting when you have to, you know, eye gaze with a man. You don't oh, know my God. For, Can you tell this story? For like five or ten minutes just staring at somebody, <laughs> like right in their face, and then going to the next partner and doing it again. It just is intense. The first thing you did at your first ever men's group retreat is eye gaze walk in first thing you had to do well there's like some there's there's like the more of like a there's two camps there was the first thing i ever did which had some eye gazing was intense and like work and then there was the more modern stuff i've been doing with sager sons which is also the same thing yeah but like it's just not doing that work ever and you do that you're like what the f is going on yeah very vulnerable Um, it is very vulnerable like you want to run yeah, because you're uncomfortable. You realize when you're uncomfortable, you don't want to be vulnerable, and then you don't have trust. Like, you can't actually be vulnerable in front of another man if you don't trust that man, right? And it's it's, a, it's an interesting balance of, like, am I going to let my guard down? Who am I going to be? Am I going to put a front on? Am I just going to stare a mean mug? Am I actually going to really open up? And, you know, some men just start crying right away. Some just, like me, have like a poker face. Um, who start to soften up over time and as other men start to smile, it's just like, yeah. So yeah, eye gazing was intense, but yeah, men's work. It's healthy for me to just remember that there's other brothers out there that need support and that, you know, if we don't focus on fixing our own, I don't want to call it issues, but our own systemic kind of reoccurring like bullshit that we manifest and no mentors have ever showed us. Like we don't help solve that for us. It's just going to propagate to their, you know, the youth beneath us. And so it's like really important to help better ourselves, our partners, our community by not being toxic, right? Like really tapping into, you know, the feminine, the masculine and, you know, however you want to relate to those. Um, but also, have you know being the king being a lover being like a gesture and funny being the warrior still knowing these are archetypes you work with in the yeah like knowing when not to take shit but not to do it in a toxic way and really show up and defend your loved ones but also have empathy and know when to do it it's just like there's so much there 
it's complicated. That's for me, it's just really, it's helpful just to dip into all these and being around with other men because you learn so much. And every time another man is, you know, has a process or explains something, you can always relate to it. Like it's, it's so super powerful. Like you could go to an event and say nothing the whole time and still come back going, holy crap. Like you learn so much about yourself. Definitely encourage people if they go to a men's group to share and show up. It's like when you're in school or anything, you get what you put in it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, and being vulnerable is the best way to learn. Right. How have you transformed in those spaces? Because I remember you saying that some of this in this particular men's group you're in, it's been reflected to you how much you've shifted in those containers. I don't know. I just it's just natural. I think my progression in the last five years of doing men's work, having a really kick ass executive coach and just dipping into my own leadership style and as I get older, I think it's all helped probably in these circles too of step out more of emergent leadership or just share and really just not care. Like if part of it's like not, not caring so much about what maybe others think about you or your own shit, but just expressing and being humble and then just having feedback. And you start to realize when you're honest and you're transparent, what's going on for you, other men, they're also going to show more vulnerability towards you and build more trust and build a safe container. And that's how you actually get the healing and, and figure out, you know, what's going on. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if these are going to answer your questions more of a ramble, but no, we, we want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. I guess one thing I want to know. So men's work, if we can just say what it is, is like, like I have my women's circles and I have like the, the work I devote to like in the, like all the pie slices of my life, you know, we only have so much energy, capacity, time, money. I devote a pie piece to the work in like with our, my teacher, grandmother, Sarah in my women's circle. And then we have a community that we like go every beginning of the May and do Beltane with, and that's a spiritual connection. So one of your pie pieces is being in containers of men being vulnerable and working through processes so that toxic masculinity can like leave the building. Yeah. And like, totally. And examples of that, like I, I don't sing. Right. But in these groups, we'll all be in a hot lodge together, a sweat lodge. And someone will lead a song and we all start singing along and have ceremony in like our own ways. And it's just like super rewarding. Yeah. Like, Never thought I'd be in a sweat lodge with, you know, a whole bunch of dudes singing and, yeah, you know, indigenous, indigenous songs yeah. led by, you know, a, a brilliant man just like and just vibing off of it. And then also, yeah, like it's just it's yeah. so healing and connecting. And what I realize is that, you know, as a man, it's very competitive, specifically in like the corporate and like tech world. And, like men are almost taught to not trust and like, again, I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> from my experience and who I am. I absolutely don't trust uh, in the security industry. And I mean, trust is kind of... It's kinda, your job not to trust. Yeah, trust is is earned. It's not given. And I think showing up to these groups and being vulnerable and being transparent, you start to earn trust really quickly. And you start to give trust to others as you're noticing that. And that's been really rewarding because in my whole life, I don't think I've... You know, I have my core group of friends, you know, small subset, but I've never been more connected to in an intimate way with these men. I've never had that in my life, right? So it's super yeah. cool to be connected, know the deepest, darkest shit to, you know, seeing men just heal their own pain and and share their experiences and laugh with them and fight them, like literally punch someone in the face, right? Like, like safely. Uh, yeah, yeah, safely. Yeah. With boxing gloves and doing kind of sacred sparring and just like things like this that we can't, we can, but we don't do outside of these containers. And yeah. it helps build the repetition and safety to process ourselves and others. So when we come back, we don't, we're not a melting pot where, you know, we, we have tools, we have a network we can call, we have people we can talk to and things are hard. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, all, it's a support group, you know, men, like it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Returning to the ways of counsel. 
which is think is so important. Yeah. So you, so you know, I'm all about revillaging, right? And I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like in these modern times. And you and I have had deep conversations about like, uh, you know, the ways of hyper individualism. And I'd say that you're a low key prepper. And you and I, and you've always talked about your bunker underground and me being like, no, no, let's look at it differently. And you and I being, no, no, let me, let me bring you in this. And so I guess I'd love to know what you have to say about your vision for us as a family and in our greater community, our greater family of what revillaging means to you in these times. I mean, like if you asked that question 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, a bunker of ammo, right? Yeah, right. Um, but if you asked me that question now or even five years ago, I would say, oh yeah, a bunker because they're fun and they're cool, but the garden above with the people steering it and the tools given to them is what is the doomsday approach, you know, like community of skills and trade, not about isolating yourself with ammunition and taking, but it's about building a strong network of individuals who can tend the land and do different trades and show up and show up for the, you know, quote, whatever the village may be. That's something much more of the, my bunker attempt now, but yeah, for us, I think having an intentional community where you know everybody and you have resources to give if that's food, power, water, skill set, money. Right? Yeah, money. Well, money can define all those at the same time, but I'm talking more from a skill set mm-hmm. perspective. You know, we build a really cool solar array with 15 Tesla power walls. Like, what does it look like to power some other distributed grid for neighbors? If you know what I mean, like stuff like that. I'm really into the, the yeah, you have a big vision of the infrastructure side of the community. The answer my skill set uh, can help a lot more with. Yeah. I would say an intentional community of individuals who have hard conversations and That's don't necessarily don't necessarily get along. Like I don't yeah. want all like minded people. I want people that are gonna ask hard questions and are going to argue and you know, but people need to show up and they need to be committed to while well, like the term I think is putting in work, which can mean a lot for people, but when I refer to that it's You're showing up with integrity to what's needed at that time. So, yeah, like potential community of individuals who want to partner to make everybody better and help kind of just sustain. Yeah, lift everyone up. Yeah, lift everyone up. As as we say this from our suburban single family home, (laughs) we're just... We're exploring this. We're definitely not experts and we are still figuring this out, but we have a vision. Yeah, and also, like, personally, I don't want, you know, people living, like, you know, when you talk about, like... like, You don't uh, want a shared house. I don't want shared houses or, like, you know, shared too much space. Like, I'm cool having a people an acre away, right? (laughs) Like, 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 there's... I still like my space and being able to isolate what I need to. And so, I think a lot of people, when they hear the term I start talking about intentional community or like villaging villaging or, or, you know, Oh, living with your friends. You're like, Oh, your roommates. I'm like, no, 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 no. Someone could go have a module three bedroom, two bath home down the street, four acres or four, you know, four acres away. Like that's, that's the, that's the community. Or you share building, a backyard, right? you knock down a fence yeah. in suburbia yeah. and you share and a you, backyard and you, you put, each a, takes put a picnic a table and a barbecue out there. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It's, so I think so just, many ways to do it. I just don't want people to when we say that they say, "Oh, you live together in a like a commune." It's like no, no, no. It doesn't it's not what we're talking about. It's not what I'm talking about. At least it's not what we're talking. <laughs> about. Yeah. yeah. So we're exploring that. Okay. Someone did ask a question about how your relationship, the evolution of your relationship with Atlas. I know you spoke a little bit about how in the beginning she was just like a blob that didn't need you. And then you learned to cherish diaper changes. But is there anything you want to say as like being Tim, the father of Atlas, about how that's evolved? Sure. Like Atlas melts my heart every time I look at her. She's just so amazing. Like she really is. And I would say when she started staring at me, and blinking and smiling, I was like, oh shit. Because before it was just sleeping, she'd wake to go back in the boob, sleep, wait, you know what I mean? It was like that for quite a bit. 
And then she would sit there and just kind of zone out. But eventually she would look at me and I could just tell that I'm like, Oh, she's looking at me. She's like, she understands like who in a way of who I am, like, Oh, I'm here. Um, and then ever since that, you know, fast forward to today, she changes so fast, but like my relationship just gets stronger and stronger with her. Like every day I just love her more and more and more. And it's not like, Oh, I didn't love her before. It's just easier for me to express my love to her and really just be present with her. That's like, like in the, <laughs> she nonstop speaks right now and run around. And I feel like if that was with another human being, I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm over this. But with her, I just sit there and just, smile like just soak it all in i want to continue doing that so back to the whole conversations of being present and like you know getting out of tech and all that when i'm working or doing cool stuff that's fun but the moments where you're just watching her jump on the bed and make a little tent and like just talk to you and process and figure things out there's nothing more magical than that there's nothing more entertaining or fun than that and so for any fathers out there or anyone thinking like it, it's really, really hard and it gets a lot better. And it's just the bond. I don't know what it is like with a son. I'm sure it's amazing, but a dad daughter bond from my experience with my only experience is just something so special about that. Um, I can't even, I can't articulate the words. Yeah. I wonder if it's also just her as a human, you and this being. Yeah. Yeah, could we? Yeah. She's just amazing. She is. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard her get for a nap when we were on this conversation. Yeah, she probably and, hear and, her giggling behind and us. Yeah, and just made, made me smile thinking about her running around. Yeah. Yeah. And also, selfishly, and when she gets scared, she gives you like the biggest hug, <laughs> right? Like, like she'll run to you and like, grab you and give you a big hug. And, you know, I'm smiling because, like, I know it's nothing for her, nothing to be worried about, but she doesn't know, you know, a piece of lint blows across the room, hits her in the head, what that is. <laughs> and it's just, it's just so adorable to see how she processes that and how she runs to me for safety. It just is such a rewarding feeling of probably my own trauma and bullshit that I'm still working on of feeling like, oh, I can take care of her and all this stuff and um, I don't know. It just, it's just great. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's something about us birthing her that she's brought us to a, a more natural pace of life. Yeah. And like, that's a good way to put it. Also, when you look at her, I tell a lot of people this, and every baby's probably the same. There's no conceived plan, manipulation, nothing. It's just raw emotions of a human who's just feeling. Is she happy, hungry, sad, scared? What she needs, self-expression. It's just amazing to see that. And you go, wow, if we could all function that way, I mean. We all did once. Yeah, yeah. But if we could function that way again, not as a toddler two-year-old, but enough to be able to have conversations and process data, just not be in our heads and just express what you need and how you're feeling, like that's a relationship right there, right? You know, like even like you and I, as we go yeah. deeper into this just being vulnerable and expressing what we need it's so hard to do but that's really what it's about right yeah and just the fact that she's always orienting herself towards pleasure she's always looking to be delighted to laugh to dance to sing she's she's that reminds me that we as humans especially those of us who contend with like anxiety depression anger to remember that our innate way is oriented towards pleasure and joy and laughter. That's been so healing for me to just be, you know, the humble witness of this human. Yeah, I don't, she never, yeah, that's a good point too. She gets upset, but she's never, I don't know, I've, I've never seen Atlas grumpy. Like, a what? <laughs> no, but like, like when she's sick or she doesn't have something that she like really wants, but saying no or, you know, kind of forcing an all done situation, she'll just find the next thing to make yeah. her happy. Is what I'm going with. She's not going to sit there in the corner right now and stew on it 
and then make up a story of why mom's bad right now. That's all going to shift, <laughs> right? right? Right. But it's just great to see the, the state of the brain development, who they are. It's like, I'm like, whoa, that's just, that's just a primal being. And then yeah. eventually we or society, others, and then she starts to develop in our world, that will start the shift, right? As, yeah, as, and we'll meet that. As, right, which is, it's just interesting to see. Mm-hmm. I think we should wrap up here with just maybe um, coming back to you and me and the relationship. I like to reassure people that we're a lot better than we were. And I think it's also really helpful to tell people like that we went through a really tough experience, the baby bomb, as I call it, of having a child, having it really test and and poke holes in the relationship. And that, I mean, not that we're fixed or anything, but we've made, I, I definitely feel like we're emerging on the other side of this, you know, massive initiation. And, um, and also we've been together for 17 years. So we've had many versions of relationship and, and um, embodiments of who we are. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything from your perspective about the relationship you and I are in, in this moment and what we've just come through. I mean, relationships. My opinion, it's like like architecture. You, know, you don't you don't build them to last. You build them to change, right? And so, what I mean by that is looking at like a. You know, I don't know if the audience is going to follow this this reference, but uh, you know, like, <laughs> try like like looking at something like a a monolithic application, like a giant. No, thing. no one knows what that is. Okay. Tim. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with anyways. Okay. Like building something that you think you're going to just build it and it's going to run forever and be done. Kind of like, you know, some systems. Ooh, a monolithic still, application. Yeah, some, okay, okay. You know, everything's interconnected and change one thing, it all breaks. Like a lot of the banking systems still that we run on and our infrastructure runs on. But when you look at modern applications and microservices and, and deployment models, you start to think about like, oh, you build things for change because the landscape, the ecosystem, applications are always changing. You have contracts. You start to build out more distributed systems. And which is the I, way of the earth. Which I, you know, what I mean by that for us is that if I looked at the woman I married or even proposed to and started dating to now, I mean, and I try to keep that same narrative that I was talking about of what, I mean, the system would have crashed a long time ago. And so mm. being able to go with the flow and be adaptive and having, you know, pulling the right resources that you need and really just adapting to the situation and building things for change is key. And so continuous education, continuous work around updating your tool chest or your war chest, wherever you want to call it. War um, chest yeah, for the relationship. Yeah. Like, like how, how to, you know, pull strategy or defense or, uh, can you uh, soften this language? I don't, this is the right language I use. I'm sorry. Wait, Cause uh, you are talking about me, right? Yeah. I am talking about you. So it's like how to approach a battle or deescalate or how to think uh, about AKA a fight. Yeah. Or, even just knowing that I need to, my approach that works today might mm -hmm. not work in two years because you are different. Mm -hmm. I'm different. Mm -hmm. Things are different. And so it's just always updating your strategies where I'm going with here. Um, yeah, no, I hear you. And ensuring that when you're building tools or you're talking that you're not saying it's a one and done or this is the fix, that it doesn't exist. It's continuously changing. The landscape is changing. And I think when you focus in on your values and kind of core principles with each other, that, that's really key. Those shouldn't shift too much, but just the execution of it, it's just, I just noticed from my experience with you, like the more vulnerable we are with each other and soften is always better. Yeah. But those approaches of how we do that are continuously changing. Yes. Right. So whatever, whatever that is for, you know, people to hear. Yeah, I think our relationship is, it's better. I mean, better is not, not the right word. Our relationship is a relationship that's continuously changing and it has harder days and it has easy days. And I would say right now, it's they're easy days. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we went through some hard shifts of just getting through it. And now I feel like we have more time and ability to articulate with each other and talk before we didn't have that time and probably we didn't want to make time for it either because we were just frustrated and tired and weren't prioritizing. We were under-resourced, yeah. 
And like anything you want, you want to work on yourself. People go to the gym, they eat healthy. You got to work on your relationship. That's yeah. why we do couples therapy for so long now, right? As a maintenance and then you know, doing date nights and really making efforts. Like you have to do that. At least I'm a firm believer of that. Yeah. When you're both working and time is just difficult and it's always easy to sit down and go, oh, we don't have time for that. So you just have to make time. You have to prioritize it. Yeah. So prioritize your relationship. Esther Perel says, I'm going to paraphrase this, but you, you will have many relationships throughout your life and it's up to you if it's with the same person or not. And I really like that when I, that's been really helpful for me to think about how, yeah, I've been with the same person, you, but we've had many variations on the relationship and yeah, you've always been Tim Piastrelli, but you, you're right now emerging into this like new embodiment of who that is. And we all know I'm shifting and changing all the time. So yeah, that's us. As I would put it, building scalable infrastructure. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I, I wonder if anyone else is giggling with us or if they're like, what are they talking about? You get a, just a sneak peek into who we are. All right, Tim, thank you. Thank you for your words. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me. In a time when our attention is being pulled in so many different directions, it means a lot that you took time out of your day to spend it with me and in these important conversations. For show notes and links and more information about my guests, you can head to belongingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to hear more from me and get access to my free newsletter called Slow and Seasonal, you can head to beccapiastrelli.com slash subscribe.